Hello everyone, we're at episode 9. For everyone who has been following our interviews so far, this is a good one. Karthik and I invited Tim Higgins for this episode. Tim graduated with a BSEE from WPI and spent the next 24 years designing mixed signal semiconductor test systems for Teradyne as a hardware engineering manager. He then began his second career as a consumer networking product reviewer and analyst for the next 25 years through a series of websites, Practically Networked, Tom's Networking, and Small Net Builder. He now designs Wi-Fi test methods and converts them into automation scripts for Spirant Octobox systems. One of the most interesting things about Tim and his career journey is that he always found a way to do what he liked. If you guys have listened to our previous interviews, a lot of our experts say exactly that. Find a way to do what you like. Karthik and I learned a lot from this interview with Tim. He talks about how important it is to understand testing and testing with the customer ask in mind. He also touches on the complex relationship between design and test and how one can bridge the gap between the two. As Tim reflects on his career to answer our questions, he encourages our audience to test the environment that you are in continuously and be willing to take risks so we can challenge ourselves to grow in our careers. Karthik and I had a lot of fun with this interview. We think you guys will find it informative and helpful to design a career path for yourselves. Let us know in the comments. Tim, welcome to the EITF project. Uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, I just wanted to give, you know, apart from all that glowing uh, introduction that you just had, I wanted to give you my own personal introduction. Uh, I've been working with Tim uh, very closely ever since my career started at Octoscope. You know, I, before I started working with him, I became a big fan of his, uh, of his great reviews about routers on smallnetbuilder.com, and uh, it's been a great relationship ever since. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you on here, Tim, uh, and uh, it's going to be fun. I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Nadine. Uh, so let's start with the, with the first question. My question is, what was your first job and what was the one piece of knowledge that you took away from it that you carry with you today? Yeah, my first job was actually working in a drugstore after high school. <laughs> I mean, while I, while I was in high school. And my takeaway from that was uh, show up on time and do what you're told to do. <laughs> and do it well. But in terms of uh, tech, uh, technology, my job after uh, college was with Teradyne. And uh, that was, at that point, um, I was a raw BSEE coming out of uh, WPI, Worcester Polytech. Really, uh, I had sort of a minor specialization in electronics, but it was pretty, pretty green. I was a raw electrical engineer. And those days, not much in terms of computer science. Those were the days of uh, teletypes and um, the uh, data cartridge, it was like an eight-track cartridge for data. It was just like horrible stuff. You know, especially the 300 foot ones, you just wait forever to have to have it go back to the initial point. And my first job was really at that point, what Teradyne did, and I think it was a very good way to start my career, was everybody started out in test. So that I was since so that so that I don't bury the lead, I've spent my entire you know career basically in test. My 30 plus years and it's sort of been in two slugs one was uh, at teradyne where i basically uh, was designing what i call big iron semiconductor chip test equipment which you know teeny tiny little chips 
big, big, big test systems, uh, multi-rack systems, million dollar plus types of systems. And mostly in the mix, my division did mix signal testing. And then in the second part of the career, it was a slug of basically reinventing myself and being a product reviewer. But at the heart of all of that has always been test. And so it was very appropriate to start out on the test floor. And the first thing I tested was, was a, uh, at that point, the division I worked for, the first division I worked for made backplane test systems. So it was basically an automated system that checked to make sure all the wires were where they were supposed to be in, uh, in backplane, the systems. And the system was based upon um, a custom CMOS chip. Uh, a lot, big part of my job was finding basically broken circuits on the circuit boards <laughs> because I learned that, semi, that CMOS parts could power themselves from the inputs. The this, this system consisted of cards that would go into the backplane slots that, you know, whichever physical, and they had to be made in different physical configurations depending upon, you know, the backplane. A lot of the failures wouldn't be found until you got, you know, like a hundred of these cards in the system, then you get these very flaky failures. And it was because they, the devices really didn't have power. So anyway, it was a good job. Uh, learned test techniques, learned a lot of things and basically did any anything needed to be done. That was my first job. It really, uh, my introduction to being an electrical engineer. I feel like somewhere down the line when I'm asked the same question, I'll have a similar answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you know, at least from my, my, my view of it, you, you've had a very similar experience. You've just done whatever needed to be done. I know today you have to come in and basically produce your, the expectation is you need to produce. So if you're, you're hired as a design engineer, you need to come in and start designing. And uh, I guess uh, education um, gives a better background now so that people can actually do that. But there's still something to be said, I think, for some, whether it's a formal or informal, what it amounts to basically being an apprenticeship period, where you really learn what engineering is as opposed to, you know, what it is from a textbook. Yeah, and I think the best way to do that is in test. You get your hands dirty. Yeah, you find out, you know, you get to see different designs, you get to understand, you get to analyze designs, um, and, and sometimes you get to provide useful feedback to the design engineers, some of which is welcome much of which is not but you know because you know design engineers <laughs> yeah i think developers will be like don't catch any bugs in this i just don't want to go redo this all over again <laughs> you know, it's it's very much like a oh you're the test guys and the design guys you know there's always they don't tension. get along well there's always tension in the system our job is to break what the designers design <laughs> and generally people don't like that because you know they don't want to have their their baby broke it though. It's, it's a love-hate relationship, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. very necessary because if it weren't for <laughs> it weren't for us, it'd be a lot more buggy stuff in the world. So you talk about all of this. So what is one turning point in your career during the span that has got you to where you are currently? It, I think the turning point was where I realized that I didn't want to go any further in the company that I was in. No one says that work has to be fun, right? The ideal thing is, is that what we enjoy what we do. Um, um, the pressure isn't too bad. You can deal with all the things. You get paid well, and you know everything's hunky dory. And those jobs are very rare, very few and far between. The job that I was in, I had, I had risen through the ranks, and so at the point where I went from you know uh, from basically test engineer to a eh, not so great designer. I did do some designs, but I was never that great at design engineering. It, at a circuit level, I was great at systems engineering. 
because I always like, whenever I would see something, I always wanted to understand how the thing fit together, how the system worked. And so that was fun. But it was also at the point where, when I had risen to the point where I was in management and, and leading a design group that, you know, had um, 100 or so engineers and contractors and go have to go to these quarterly results meetings and um, watch people get beat up for not meeting their numbers and things like that. And, you know, being beat up myself for, you know, not hitting schedule and everything. And just so I look, would look at these guys, you know, the VPs and the next level up director levels, I'd say they don't look like they're having very much fun. And I'd say, I know I'm not having very much fun at this level. So I think I need to do something different. And that was really what's the, the point that started me on um, the path to uh, a second career and a reinvention. That's very interesting. I think you made the reverse journey. You went from being an IC to a manager and then back. Management is not for everybody, especially if you are in a company where you don't receive a mentoring and management training and those sorts of things. And nobody sort of helps you, helps you sort of figure all of that out. You know, some people are, are better with people than others, right? I did miss the people when I stopped doing things. I didn't miss the job. And it wasn't that I would never wanted to manage people because I've always sought out leadership positions. So either sought out or just I naturally gravitate towards it. I'm, I'm the type of person that <laughs> Dini knows this very well. If you're in a meeting and somebody sort of says something and sort of puts a puts a problem out on the table. And it's like, most of the time people wait to see if they can wait out the clock. You know, nobody wants to touch the hot potato, right? And good old Tim, I'll just jump right in and, you know, say, hey, that's a hot potato. Boy, is that an ugly potato. We really need to do something about this potato. Let me tell you, I've been trying to fix this potato, et cetera, et cetera. And I've never, you know, worried about doing that. And very often that results in, okay, well, you take the hot potato and you fix it. And it's like, fine, I'll do that. So in a group of people, I will sort of naturally say, okay, we're going to go this way. If anybody wants to follow, please come along. But if you don't, then I'll just sort of blaze the path, try to do it myself. You can then sort of marshal. Once people understand that someone's willing to be the point person, be the shield, the general will say fine. They just don't want to have to be the one writing the reports, getting in trouble if it doesn't come through, you know, getting beat up if you're not meeting schedule. So. Uh, I can vote for that. Um. <laughs> uh. Nandini, you're a kindred spirit in that. <laughs> We're all on the same battlefield, Tim. You know. um, we spoke a lot about what you what you learned during the course of your career, but what is one thing that you had to unlearn? Oh, that's a really good question, and it's my total lack of patience, and I'm still not good at it. I'm still very bad at it. But the impatience and and part of that it comes with the you know not wanting to wait around while people sort of figure out who's going to raise their hand type of thing. But uh, patience is something that. I still need to work on it. It's hard. And also, you also having to unlearn um, being the first to speak up. Sometimes you need to shut up and listen because other people have contributions too. I mean, I think I can relate in terms of the patience thing because my attention span is like five minutes for trying to solve an issue before I move on to the next one. So and thankfully you have very many issues. You have a, you know, a good pile of them. So you don't have to wait very long to get something else to work on. Yeah. So for people entering the industry, right, and hoping to have a similar career path as yours, what's one piece of advice you would give them? Well, first of all, do you want to have a similar career path? <laughs> <laughs> 
many people, I mean, that's a fundamental uh, question. It's, it's, uh, my career path is not for everyone, right? Uh, I left the, after 20 something years, I think it was 22, 23 years, left a well paying job, walked away from, you know, a bunch of stock options and everything that was on the table and, you know, basically took a leap left into the void. And my job had been very good to me financially. So I had money in the bank, uh, didn't have children to worry about. At that point, I was in my life, I was single. So, you know, I just had to worry about me. So I could make that leap without a, a bunch of other things. Be willing to take risks. You can't shy away from risk. If you always want to have something that's a sure thing, then you're probably going to have, you can have a good career, but you will maybe not have as rewarding or as exciting a career, but um, you certainly need to, you need to be willing to take risks and you need to be willing to take responsibility. You can find people to do a job, but it's harder to find people who can do that, just basically point them in the direction and say, you need to do X and then have the person go off and take control. And that doesn't say that everything has to come from your brain either. I mean, it's also a person knows, who knows how to use the resources that are available. And if they don't have the resources, knows how to find the resources. Interesting question. I know you talk about the risk appetite. How does one with conviction take the plunge uh, and be like, okay, I'm going to take this risk? Is, is that an inner calling or is that through experience? Is it uh, obtained or how does that work? Or in your case, with what conviction were you like, okay, I'm going to take this risk? I think inherent in risk is that it implies that you don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? If you know what the outcome is going to be, then it's not a risk. It's just a decision. I'm going to make a choice to, to do X as opposed to do Y. To me, it's not taking a risk. It's just doing something. And the risk part of it just comes from sometimes just doing what someone else isn't willing to do or doesn't want to do or wants to watch somebody else take the ball first. I guess maybe the, the answer to the question is that I'm not a patient person. So that's what causes me to take risks because I don't think things through all the time. You know, we talked about all these um, characteristics that are great for someone to have when you, I mean, when you interview someone today, apart from the job qualifications, what do you look for? I look for someone who, first of all, I wouldn't mind working with. Because if you don't click with someone on a personal, and, and if it's someone who I'm going to be working, who I'm going to be working with, or they're going to be working for me, very important that there has to be some sort of a, a personal comfort level. The other thing is, is I have to know that I can trust that person. And and how do you evaluate that in an interview? It's hard in a short in a short period of time, but they say you it's like within the first three minutes, I think that you get a you can get a feel for somebody. You can never have a hundred percent. And I've made bad hires. I've totally misjudged. I can think of one person that I hired, totally misjudged that person. Wished I hadn't hired them. It's not that they were a terrible person, but they really required a much more care and feeding than they should have. But in the end, you learn, right? You're not gonna. You're not gonna get a hundred. This is. These are people that you're dealing with. You're not gonna get it right hundred percent of the time. But I also learned that when you get it wrong, you have to deal with it. Nobody ever does anybody a favor by refusing to address a situation that. Uh, needs to be addressed. So when someone has to be let go, then you just have to bite the bullet and do it. Because you, in the end, you're doing you're doing them a favor too. So you talk about uh, hiring people and making them go figure things out and be passionate about stuff. So you hire a new person. How does a new employee bring up ideas? 
in a room full of experienced individuals? Well, the first thing I would have that person do is figure out if that's the way she should do it, because you have to know your organization. And in some organizations, that may not be an acceptable way of doing it. It may be more of a one-on-one. So the, the main piece of advice I would give is, is know your environment. Whoever your supervisor is, talk to them first. Say, you know, I've got, I, I've got some ideas. I have some, some thoughts about something. Should I bring them up in, you know, the, the daily scrum or should I, how should I bring them up? So it's like ask the question as opposed to make the assumption that, yeah, you're going to come into this room of experienced people and just be able to put the ideas on the table and have them, everybody go, yay, that's a great idea. Wonderful. Because most organizations are not like that because again, you've got experienced people, people have turf. You got to know, you got to know where you're going. I'm going to maybe shift topics a little bit for outside of work, you know, at least everybody that I've worked with has something going on out of their 40-hour work week. And I believe it's it's important. I, I mean, I believe that what you do out of your 40-hour work week towards your career is just as important as what you do within mm-hmm. the 40-hour work week. So what is one piece of advice you would give someone who's looking to start that work? Well, it should definitely be something that is does not involve work. Um, it should be something that you enjoy doing. But it could be, it doesn't say it needs to be non-technical, right? You may enjoy, um, if you code during the day, you may enjoy just coding things on your own. Um, although, you know, it's better to have, you know, some develop a different part of the brain, I think. The other thing is, is it, it's, it's good. Most of our jobs involve so much sitting. And there's one thing that I wasn't sensitive to for, for such a long time in my career, that the importance of just being able to get outside and do something different or, or just fit, whether it's exercise, yoga, you know, whatever you do, exercise your body, right? In some way, because you, you need that. Because if you're not in good physical shape, and especially as you age, <laughs> that really affects the quality of life and it affects the quality of your work. Try a bunch of different things, but yeah, have interests outside of work because, uh, and it's hard because some companies don't encourage that. I think the trend today is more towards a work-life balance. Um, I didn't have a lot of that in my different careers until I had my second career. Uh, and I've had my second career has been the most fun I've had. <laughs> you know, it's like much more fun than, than, than working in an office. And it's not because the work wasn't interesting in my first career. And it's not because I'm not managing, I'm just managing myself as, as opposed to managing a bunch of people, but it's much more that I can set the pace and it's, I'm doing stuff that I choose to do as opposed to things that it, it's control. A lot of it is, is control. COVID, I think, has just done so much in some ways to screw a bunch of that up. But in other ways, it's really accelerated the whole work from home, telework, something, alternatives um, to just being having to make that commute and be in the office uh, seven days or however many days a week. And I think that that is helping the work-life balance for a lot because you can do a lot of things. Um, when you can mix things up. And, but again, a lot of that involves trust, a lot of that is company culture and other things. I think, I think to maintain a good work-life balance, apart from the quirks that companies give you today, it's also some, it's also a conscious effort that everybody has. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, you have to make a conscious effort because if you don't, your default is there's always a list of things to do at work. 
right? Work will, work can suck you dry, right? A job can suck you dry. And if you don't, and I learned this the hard way because is that you have to set your own limits and everybody has limits, right? The person who looks like they have, can do it all. And, you know, always is there and never goes home or anything. You're paying a price for that. I mean, I was that, I was that guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, because when people ask you, is there work? And my immediate answer through experience goes, this work always like you need to know when to switch on and when to switch off because if you're always like this work i need to do it and work will never give you the opportunity for you to switch off so you need to have a hard uh, press where you say i'm done yep yep as a matter of fact the more you do the more will get piled on right because work flows it's like water right work flows to the path of least resistance and so if there's always a you know you're always draining the pond more quickly than somebody else guess what more water's going to go into you so yeah yeah so i just wanted to switch gears and talk more about management right and i have this question myself which is i'm an individual contributor and how does the transition look when I want to transition from being an IC to a manager? The comp- my experience was, again, the company I worked for uh, did not have any formal management training program. It was it really depended upon you to figure out what your path was. The way that I would do it and the way that as I brought people up, because my attitude was always, look, uh, anybody who were any one of the managers that worked for me and direct my direct reports were managers, right? They weren't, you know, individual contributors. But it says, look, if you want my job, I want you to have my job. So let's talk about what it takes to get there. But sort of the first step towards being more than an individual contributor is basically leading a team. To do that, that says that you have the, now, this is this is an interesting thing because it says that you have, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, you have the responsibility, but you don't have the authority, right? So you have no power of you will do it my way because I am the manager and I hold, you know, power of life and death and firing and hiring over you. It's like, no, this is the ability to say, okay, lead a team, organize people, manage the situations as they manage the people, manage the situations as they come up and be able to do that. Yeah. With no authority to do that. Only the authority that is given to you as someone who's leading a team. Management is a, is a weird term is because it, it involves, it, it, it sort of implies that, well, you're just sort of moving pieces around a chessboard. Management to me is leading and coaching, right? It's helping people. I always would say as a manager, my job was to remove the obstacles. My job is to make your job easier. So let me know what the obstacles are because I'm in a position because I have access and, you know, contacts and, you know, hobnob, go to meetings with the other, you know, department heads. I can make things happen that you may not be able to make happen. So let me know what the obstacles are and let me help get those things out of your way. I think, I think communication skills play a big role when you're a manager. And that's, that's where I think a lot of people, yeah, that's, that is, comes the, that's the hardest part. Cause again, it's the people part. And some people feel that a manager's, you know, once you're a manager, you just say, do this, do that. Right. And you don't care about the other person. You don't care about how that, that affects them, but that's in the end, that's not going to be effective. Management. I'm, I'm going to shift topics again. Well, I, I'm going to come from an organization's standpoint and you know, questions that they would have. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the employment space today um, has, a, has a nickname. They call it the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think a company can do to, in general, retain its employees? If 
people are happy, they're generally not going to be looking for other opportunities. And you know, when headhunter, and you have calls from headhunters or not calls today, they can text you and do all sorts of other ways of reaching out. But if you're not interested, you're not interested. Now, that's not to say that some people are, are there's always going to be some people who are look, make me an offer and I'll go, right? To me, the main thing is money. I think with what a company has to do is understand um, what the needs and desires of each of their employees is, whether they're happy, whether they are, you know, what motivates them, what is their next step, you know, what do they want to do, right? It's hard as you get into larger organizations, it gets harder and harder, but again, it, it depends upon that. It says even the role of the manager is even more important. Because a manager who has good people skills and who understands and has their feelers out and has a good network built, they'll know when people are unhappy. You know, we live in a digital era with cloud computing and advancements and quantum and et cetera, right? And there's a lot of competition around in the industry. So my question is a two-part question. The first part is, what does an employee do to stay relevant in this ever-changing ecosystem? And B, what does a company do to stay relevant uh, with increased competition? What an individual needs to do is part of it, a key part of it is to always look for the other opportunities that give you a chance to expand your skill set. And that's not necessarily in your, your field of training. Right, that those those opportunities can be uh, do things that help you develop your management skills, whether that's time management, people management, whatever. But that's you know a lot of that is um, depends upon um, the person understanding that they need to stay relevant. They need they need to be refreshed. The good news is it's a lot easier to do that today. There are a lot of online courses. There's so much stuff that's online. The resources that are available just to I did not take a course in Python, right? But I code in Python. I taught myself to do Python and have never bought a Python book, right? So I, I feel sorry for the guys, for the publishers of, I feel sorry for the publishers of, of computer, you know, reference books because there's no need for them anymore. You know, you go stack overflow. You want to know how to do something, blah, blah, blah. Someone's already done it. Right. Just go do that. But I mean, that's, that's sort of procedural. That's just sort of, okay, I have a task. I'm now looking for those different things. It, it's really, just, and no one, no one does this. No one says, I mean, I never sat down and said, okay, here's a list of the skills that I need for position X. And here's a, therefore, let me start going down the list and checking them off and checking them out and say, I'm gonna do this and do this. Maybe there are people out there that do that. And maybe those are the people that rise to be presidents of companies very quickly, unless they don't start their own company. But for most people, it's just, I think the best way of expanding your skill set is to number one, realize you need to do it is step one. Is that is if you think you're gonna go through even geez, even tell you a 10 year career with the same set of skills that you walked in through the door with, um, well, you're gonna be either stuck in a dead end job or be out of a job. So that's part of it. The other thing is that um, take advantage of the training, take advantage of the opportunities that your company offers. And if they don't offer opportunities, find a company that does. Sometimes the things you learn, what you learn every day are the things not to do. Like every day I learn, oh, I shouldn't do that that way. <laughs> I coded that wrong. I made the wrong decision over here. And that's a, that's a form of learning too. Prioritization today is a, is a balancing act between 
maintaining existing products and choosing to innovate when when a company chooses to innovate what do you think they should what questions do you think they should answer before they make that decision and what do you think they can do to mitigate the risks behind innovation that's a hard that's a hard question and most companies fail because, um, and it, it sort of goes back to, I think one of the earlier questions asked about, you know, advice for companies or, or what a company is supposed to learn. What it comes down to is that, look, any company, if you're a successful company, and as a matter of fact, the more successful you are as a company, the broader your, your, the broader your product base is, your customer base is. And there's a good news and bad news story in that. A big customer base is, gives you the money to keep going. It's, just, it's your source of profits, right? The only people with the money are the people buying your products, right? But they're also a boat anchor. They will always bring you back to the thing that is broken, the thing that is they have to deal with now that they paid their money for and that they want to have work properly. A large percentage of companies fail to make that transition to the next generation product. So part of it is having, is that the, the leadership of the company has to understand what a product pipeline looks like and what product platforms look like. And some of that is basic sort of product development. It's not new stuff. There are books written on it. You have to know how to do it. And you have to know how to build platforms that can then be extended and be built upon to iterate on products. And then you also have to understand that at some point you need to throw away that platform and need to go to a new platform. And that is one of the most difficult things a company has to do. And it generally involves taking a dedicated team. You need a dedicated team. You can't have people who are trying to maintain the old product and pick up the phone answering, you can't have them do that and, and be worrying about the next generation stuff. So you have to carve up a team. And the thing is, is that that team is generally going to be your best people from the old thing. So you're basically going to take your, you're going to risk starving your cash cow while you go up and develop the new. And that is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. Key to that is also understanding when your current platform is run out of steam and you have to make that next year. I'm a creature of habit. So mm-hmm. I'm going to be like, well, don't change things on me like this. Um, and I'm not going to be happy about it. That's, it's, it's a hard decision. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, yeah. and it can be a company killer. An interesting point that I picked up in your previous discussion was the growing customer base and how things change. We all work towards uh, delivering stuff to customers and your customer base now keeps changing. Like they want different things uh, more rapidly, sometimes on a day-to-day basis, sometimes on a weekly basis. So how would you approach an ever-evolving customer base and to keep up uh, with pace at which their needs and wants end up changing? Well, first of all, you have to be plugged into them. You're better off being proactive with that and not just listening to the stream of complaints coming. Um, and so that involves, you know, proactive, whether it's customer listening tours, whether it is going out and taking a straw, straw, straw man proposal out and getting custom, using that as a vehicle to get customer feedback about what they like, what they don't like. But it's really being plugged into the customers. And understanding what you, especially your key customers, what they want, what they don't want. Being able to have that conversation that's not just a reactive conversation. Some of the best things, Nadini, some of the best trips I had, and one of the things I'm glad that the company did is even as a 
uh, a young engineer going out and installing the product, right? I went on some, one of the first trips I did was I had to go out and do an installation or there was a problem with the system getting out there in the field. I designed semiconductor test equipment that in the end had to, you had to connect it to a test chip, right? So you have these big test systems and then in the end, you got to test a chip and whether you're on a wafer handler or a, or a chip handler, getting out on a real test board and seeing how people actually use the system. And you and you looked at things and it might be something we puzzled over and said, oh, we just do this cable and do this and do that. You would just say, what a dumb decision that was. This doesn't work on a test board because they have to plug it into here and they, and they don't, treat my equipment all tenderly and plug it. It's just like slam, boom, boom. You know, you got five, five minutes to change over to a new, that was the, every time I went on a test board it was such an eye-opening experience. You learn so much. Your customers will teach you if you let them. And so I, it was always, I never, as a manager, I never gave up the opportunity. I always took an opportunity to send somebody out to the field. Uh, actually, I, I want to, um, ask another question which which I saw you know recently on LinkedIn what is the one power skill you think an employee should have in today's day and age power skill that's what they called it yeah. I don't know what a power skill is <laughs> but if I can think of one life skill to have which applies to work as well as life this is flexibility the people that I mean and that's evolution that is everything that's for your mental you have and not, that doesn't say you have to accept everything that doesn't say you have to like everything but it says you have to you have to understand when you have when you need to go with the, go with the flow and uh, when you need to change all right so um for someone who wants to be an entrepreneur uh, what piece of advice you would give towards encouraging them versus what words of caution would you give them? You've, you've done small net builder all by yourself, but I'd call that entrepreneurship. You're very kind. <laughs> it, 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 it is, but it's, it's a one person entrepreneurship. You need to have money in the bank or a source of funding, right? Because if you're, if all you're doing, if you don't have that, then you're just gonna be scrambling. You're gonna make bad decisions. You're gonna have a very, unhappy personal life because you're just going to live in hand to mouth and it some people they you know there's there's the um, romance of being the scrappy entrepreneur penniless you know couch surfing doing all that stuff it's like uh, you know the guys and uh, I just watched a couple of the first watch a couple of the episode of Silicon Valley right I love that show it was so spot on I mean I've never gone through that but it was just from the little bit I watched, I went, huh, yeah, they, they, these guys sort of went through that. But I mean, that's, if you want to take the romantic, and there are always people that do that, right? There are people who will go to Hollywood, they want to be a movie star, they'll go to Hollywood, they'll go bus tables, they'll do what they need to do. But the other thing that I would say is that um, have a good idea. Before you go leaping off and say, hey, I get this great idea. And, you know, it's a, it's a new chat, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it, it's a TikTok, but for, doctors or you know it's like if it's just going to be an iteration on something else that somebody it's somebody else has already done it's just try to look for a different idea because there are so many startups that you know they get into a space they think it's a hot space that it's a race to sort of get there until the, the funding runs out and everything and I, again i don't understand any of the vc funding i mean it was a bootstrap no investors no nothing i had to 
I had to uh, have worry about anybody except myself. But um, that's your idea, right? Before you go take the leap. Okay. Uh, and lastly, Tim, how would you define success? <sighs> Being uh, well, success is success to me is not having the biggest pile of money. I'll tell you what it is. It's not having the biggest pile of money and the biggest uh, bunch of toys in the end. Because in the end, you come into this life without anything and that's the way you be. You're not taking it with you. Um, I think it's success is having a good work-life balance. It's having friends um, that you appreciate and, and who appreciate you. And it's doing stuff that, and it's like, and it's wanting to get up and go to work in the morning. And if you enjoy that, if you have all those things, and also being, you know, making enough money so that you can, so that your needs are met, and you know, a little bit more, have some fun. But if you can do that, then that's success. I love that answer. Well, thank you, Tim, for doing this interview with us. This was great. Um, I hope you found it worthwhile. <laughs> oh, it's super information. I hope the gray hair, you know, so. <laughs> Some of it, I think, may be relevant, some not so much. That's where the wisdom com comes from, Tim. Yeah, that's where the scars come from, too. <laughs> no, I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks much.